We're continuing in our series, What Revelation Reveals. And uh, if you were not able to be here last week or one of the weeks recently, I encourage you to jump onto our podcast through uh, Apple or on our website, and you can catch up some of those messages maybe that you've missed. Uh, Today, as we continue on in the specific focus of the seven letters to the churches, uh, we're today going to be talking about the church in Thyatira, the church at Thyatira, and the church there, uh, we could give kind of the, uh, the statement or the, the title, the description, the tolerant church, the tolerant church. Last week we talked about a compromising church with Pergamum, and this church is very, very similar. You could really have Pergamum and Thyatira as, as part one and two of compromise and of tolerance because they really are very similar in what they were guilty of and what they were allowing to happen. And really the root of the problem was very, very similar with these two churches. So they're really bookends of the same issue and the same problem. And so as we zero in on Thyatira, that's what we're going to see and we're going to pick up, that they unfortunately were a tolerant church, a tolerant church in a negative way, a very negative way. So let's jump in together. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29 will be our main text today. Revelation 2, starting with verse 18. Jesus here again dictating to John, and he says this, write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, and the same, same is true of, of this statement as it has been each of those introductions in the other letters. This is to the pastor, the pastor of the church in Thyatira. So write to the angel or the the messenger, the pastor, teacher of the church in Thyatira. Here's what he was supposed to write. Thus says the Son of God. This was a reference to Christ's divinity, His deity, His supremacy. It's reminding everyone who this is that is talking to them. By saying the Son of God, that's identifying Himself as fully God. What the Father is, so is the Son. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame. And he's, he said this about himself before, and that's talking about his perfect discernment. His gaze that pierces through every other barrier and every obstacle that we might be able to put up in our lives to keep others out and to keep people from really seeing what's going on at the heart level. We can't do that for Jesus. His eyes pierce through everything. He sees all. He knows all whose eyes are like a fiery flame, and whose feet are like fine bronze. That's an image that speaks of Christ's purity, His holiness, like we just sang about. He is holy. He is absolutely holy. And this speaks of His purity and His his holiness and His strength, His steadfastness. At this time, bronze was one of the strongest metals that, that was known. It was, it was something that people used when they wanted to stabilize something. It was strong, and it was pure, and it was steadfast. And that's what Jesus uses to describe Himself. Then He, he gets very personal. Verse 19, He says, I know your works. That's been a common theme through these other letters. Jesus says, because I am who I am, I am the I am. I am God. I have complete, perfect knowledge of everything. I know the good, the bad, the ugly. I know it all. I know everything about you. And this is true for this church as well. I know your works, Jesus says. Your love, faithfulness, 
service, and endurance. I know that your last works, or your your current works, are greater than the first. That's good, right? That means Jesus is recognizing in in Thyatira, your church is growing. You're continuing to mature in your, your walk with Me. You're going deeper. You're going farther. You're farther along in your relationship with Me than you were at the beginning. So that's good. And so here's another theme that we have been seeing. It's that grace sandwich again that, that I've referred to a few times. Uh, and, and it's so good that Jesus does this. This is His grace where He doesn't just jump on uh, these people right away and just start pounding away at all that is wrong and negative. He says, let me point out to you first what's going right and what's going well. And I, I'm going to recognize that. I appreciate this. I'm, I receive the goodness that I see on, on display in your lives. And so I'm going to highlight that. He starts with the good. But he also addresses the bad, as is needed. So, I know your works, your love, your faithfulness, your servants, your endurance. I know that you're, you're going forward, you're growing, your last works are greater than the first. Verse 20, but, but I have this against you. You tolerate, so there's our our theme for this church, the tolerant church, you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. There's another common reoccurring theme, right? Those of you who've been here and and have been part of this series each week or you've heard it on the podcast, you, you know this is a common problem, a reoccurring issue. Sexual immorality and idolatry, which is part of this eating meat sacrificed to idols, if they're not directly worshiping and participating in idolatry, they are doing what was a clear command and stipulation for the church not to do, for the Gentile believers especially not to do, which was to participate in any way with pagan worship or idolatry, which includes eating quote, sacred meat that was designated for whatever the idol was that it was offered to. So this is this this common reoccurring issue. And this particular issue centers around this person, this woman, Jezebel, who lifted herself up and identified as as a prophetess. So in other words, church at Thyatira, you better listen to me because I receive direct revelation from God. I have given, been given a special word. I have a special unique office. I am a prophetess unto the Lord that He has given me, given you. He's given me to you for you to, to listen to me and, and follow my lead and do what I say. You better listen to me. I'm someone special. And she used this self-proclaimed office, which wasn't genuine at all, to teach and deceive the rest of the church. The ones who were truly believers. And Jesus warned about this. This is not something that just came out of nowhere and nobody had any ability to to prepare for. Jesus warned all of His followers about this. And it's something that we need to take heed of even today. uh, Especially today. Matthew 7.15, Jesus says this, 
Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, in purity, in innocence, in righteousness, but inwardly or genuinely, truly, are ravaging wolves. The Apostle Paul warned the church at Ephesus before he left them. He said, I know when I depart you, after me will come into you wolves, which will seek to destroy everything that's been built up. I mean, it, it was something that was very easy to do, and it happened all the time. And this is what was taking place in Thyatira. John, in his epistle, uh, first, his first epistle, in 1 John 4.1, uh, he says this, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. Just because something claims to be um, in line with God doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be or completely will be. He said, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Discern. Evaluate. Test the spirits to see if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So, in other words, church... Faith Baptist, just as it was true for Thyatira or any of these other churches, we too need to be constantly on guard. And don't just accept what we hear from any source that we hear. Don't just accept it as, as blind, you know, obvious fact without any sort of discernment applied. We need to all be like what the Bereans were. The Bereans were, were said to be more faithful and more, um, more conscious, more aware than any of the other churches because even though they heard from Paul himself, they didn't just take it and, and not question or evaluate anything. They went and searched the Scriptures to see if those things were so that Paul taught them. And it was Paul. I mean, they were safe with Paul. But they knew hey, this is just a human, this is just a man, so we better make sure that what he's telling us checks with Scripture, with the perfect, timeless, always relevant Word of God. And that's what this church should have been doing, and, and obviously they let their guard down uh, because they allowed, they tolerated, and this is, this is on the part of the church leadership all the way down to each individual member. There was a tolerance of this false teacher, this false prophet, this woman Jezebel. And Jezebel was most likely, I mean just about guaranteed, was not this woman's actual name. It was a very fitting title given to her by Jesus because she was a person that followed the pattern of the Queen Jezebel, the evil Queen Jezebel found in 1 Kings 16-21 through and 2 Kings 9. And she was one of the most evil characters in all of the Bible. She's the one that married Ahab, and she introduced Baal worship to Israel, which Baal worship was really directly worship of Satan himself. And it was one of the most vile, evil, dark types of idolatry that could have ever been introduced, and it just went rampant. She introduced it to Israel. They accepted it. They were compromising. They were tolerant. Uh, she, she brought that in. She tried to kill all the prophets of God, tried to expel anyone loyal to God. I mean, she was bad news. It is 
it is not a coincidence that people aren't named Jezebel. You know, when, you, when you're deciding baby names, most people, saved or not, they don't pick Jezebel because she has been infamous for her, her evil and her compromise and what she, she caused Israel to do. I mean, she introduced all this sin, all this wickedness, and it was total disaster for decades and decades for Israel. So it's fitting that Jesus calls this woman Jezebel because she's doing the exact same thing. She introduces falsehood and, allow, and, and causes, deceives, and manipulates and causes Thyatira to compromise and to tolerate her sin, her wickedness, and to tolerate falsehood instead of exposing it and expelling it. Instead, they tolerated it, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it polluted the whole church. And what that tells us, what that shows us and reminds us of is the fact that this always happens, that tolerance of sin equals total disaster. Tolerance of sin in any form, at any level, at any time, equals total disaster. And it always will. Always. It's, it's like what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 6, nine where he said, a little yeast spreads through a whole batch of dough. Just a little tiny yeast just goes crazy. It's like what happens with debt. You've heard of the debt snowball, probably. You know, where we tolerate a little bit of debt. A little bit of debt's not bad. But then a little bit becomes a little bit more and a little bit more. And before you know it, it's a lot of debt, and it's large debt, and it's spiraling out of control, and it's this snowball that becomes an avalanche, and you're buried under it. I mean, that's just a, a really practical, real-time example of what we're talking about here. Um, it's, it's like what happens with addiction, how addiction starts. It's tolerating a little thing here and a little thing there. And before you know it, it becomes a large thing. And a large thing becomes a lot. And then you are totally under the weight and in the grip of, of addiction. Full-blown addiction. But it starts small. Little tolerances here. Little tolerances there. And then you're overwhelmed. It's, it's like something that is starting to erode as a, as a, at a foundation, you know, foundation of a house or a building. And you start seeing, uh-oh, there's, there's a little problem here. But you know what? That's okay. We can let that go. We'll tolerate that for a little while. But uh-oh, it doesn't take long. And, and it starts to spread and it starts to grow and it starts to weaken the whole foundation. And then you've got a real problem on your hands. You've got a crumbling foundation. That's what's going on with Thyatira here. It's, it's this, total, this total tolerance of sin that equals total disaster. And that's what Jesus is intervening to keep from happening. He's intervening and coming in and trying to stop what has been allowed to, to start so that total disaster does not take place. And let me just say this to each of you individually. Being tolerant of someone's sinful actions instead of lovingly, lovingly is the key, but lovingly telling them the truth about their sin 
and the result of that sin if they don't repent. If you don't do that, if you just tolerate their sin in the spirit of of tolerance, and and, hey, we just want to be all about love. It's not not loving to judge someone. That's the message that we're being inundated and bombarded with, even in the church. See, that, that little yeast, it's been introduced into the church for a long time now, and it's spreading through the whole batch of dough in the whole church. Into the church as a whole, the general church I'm talking about, there is this constant and increasing message of tolerance. The tolerance that's being promoted all through every aspect of our society has been allowed to come into the modern and especially the Western church. And it's the message that says, no, just be tolerant. Just be open-minded. Don't, don't, don't come down on people. They don't need more judgment. They just, they just need to be welcomed and accepted and loved as they are. Just be more tolerant. But, but being tolerant of someone's sinful actions instead of in love pointing out to them that they are about to go through the guardrail and over the cliff, that's the most unloving thing we could do. It's not loving to not tell someone the truth about the harm to their very soul that they are entertaining. It's warning the wicked of their wickedness because we love them. So, not telling someone the truth about their sin in a loving way so that they can repent from it is the most unloving thing we could ever do. So, despite what society tells us to do, to be more tolerant, despite what even has happened in the church of Jesus Christ, tolerating sin is not the answer. Not at all. Because tolerating sin will always equal total disaster. And we see the heart of Jesus in all of this, and it's a heart of love. And that's, that's not seen probably on more display, and it it wouldn't be able to be seen more obvious than what he says in the next statement. As he he rebukes the church for tolerating this this woman, this Jezebel-like woman, as he rebukes them for, for tolerating her sin, her falsehood that she's introduced, her deception, he he wants to point out that he's not just this swift to judge, eager to judge, wrathful uh, person that just takes pleasure at, at judging and bringing people down. That's not our Jesus. How do I know? Because of what he says in the, in the next verse. Look with me at verse 21. After pronouncing the problem and talking about her wickedness and their tolerance of it, he says this, I gave her time to repent. Literally, that's I gave her room to repent. I gave her space. I gave her space to repent. But she does not want to repent. Wow. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Church, when's the last time that you, that we, thanked God for giving us time to repent? I mean, just think about that. We all, uh, well, let me not say all, most of us, I think, understand the, the need to repent of sin. 
Like, we, we get that intellectually. We know that if, if we sin, the next step is to admit and acknowledge that sin, confess it, turn from it, repent from it, which means to stop going that way, turn around and, and go the right way. And we, we get and accept that. And hopefully we do that. Hopefully we, we regularly actively repent and we keep a spirit of repentance. That, I sure hope that's true for you. And it needs to be true for me. But as we do that, I don't know that we spend much time at all thinking about the fact that we were given time to repent. That we were given space to repent. That in our sinfulness and in, in those times where we foolishly, tragically still choose sin instead of righteousness, that in Christ's mercy and grace, He gave us space to repent. Rather than just judging us right then and there on the spot, which He could have done, which is His right to do. But instead, if you and I were given the ability to repent, it's because we were given time to do it. It's amazing. The grace of our Savior. He said, I gave her time to repent. I didn't just strike her down right away. I gave her time. I gave her chance after chance. I gave her space full of grace. But she does not want to repent. Which, by the way, is a clear sign of someone not truly being in Christ. Because if someone is in Christ, you are going to want to repent. There is going to be a desire to turn away from the sin that you're into. And if you don't have a desire, an appetite for repentance for righteousness at any point. If you're all right, just continuing on the path of sin and spiraling the way you are and you've been, you've been confronted with it and you've been called out on it, but you don't want to repent from it, then you need to go back to the beginning and evaluate whether or not you truly ever came to Christ. Because every sincere believer even if they go a while resisting repentance, at some point they're going to wake up to that and they're going to realize their need for it and they're going to want it and they're going to do it. That's what marks every real believer. Repentance. It's how you come to Christ and it marks your continued walk with Christ. So he says, I gave her time to repent. She doesn't want to. And as a result of that, Verse 22, look, look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction unless they repent of her works. So this wasn't a done deal. He's saying, I, I, I'm not saying that it's, it's over and there's no more opportunity, but I will tell you this with all certainty that I'm going to judge the sin. There will be definite, real, obvious consequence. I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, and that, that doesn't mean like literal adultery. That means those who go along with her false teaching, those who go along with her deception, those that continue to enable her, those that are part of her wickedness, her, her lies, instead of exposing the lies for what they are, all who are party to what she's doing, Unless they repent, just like what will happen to her, it will happen to them. Unless they repent, 
of her works and the works that they are going along with, then they will be judged along with her. And that tells us something else. This, this shows us how serious and important repentance is. Because refusing to repent results in ruin. Refusing to repent results in ruin. And, it, and it's not going to be just for the individual sinner themselves. Our, our sin doesn't just affect ourselves. Our sin, your sin, my sin, it always is like a, a pebble thrown into water and ripples go out from that. And my sin is going to affect other people in some way. Somehow, it will affect others around me. It's not limited to myself. We all operate in circles of impact, in circles of influence. And you might think, oh, I don't, I don't really have that much influence on anybody else. I don't really impact that many people. You're wrong. That's not true. Every single individual impacts and influences multiple other people around them. We all do that. We're all in each other's orbit. And so when I sin, yes, I sin and affect myself, sure, but my sin is not limited to me. It goes out and it affects other people. And same with you. And when I refuse to repent, not only will it result in my ruin, spiritually and otherwise, but it can absolutely bring about ruin for you as well. And the same is true for you. If you refuse to repent, then it will ruin you. Absolutely. But it also has the chance, the very real chance, to ruin those around you. And a good example of that is in the Old Testament with the sin of Achan. Nod your head if you know what I'm talking about when I say Achan. Okay. So at the Battle of Jericho, Joshua, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, right? Sorry, had to. I'll stop singing, I promise. Um, at at the, the conquest there, they were, the people of Israel were given very clear instructions and commands. They said, set apart everything, set apart everything unto the Lord for destruction. But Achan saw those shiny, pretty, wonderful Babylonian garments. And he said, my precious. Not really. I mean, I guess he could have, but... So he, he sees his precious garments, and he, he takes them and he buries them in his tent. Shake your head again if you're following me. Right? And the blessing of God was no longer on Israel at that point. And they, they went out to battle, and it was a battle they should have easily won, and they were utterly defeated. And when Joshua seeks the Lord and he says, what, what's going on here? You gave us all these other victories and now you're abandoning us? Why are you doing this? And God says, will you please get up? Why are you on your face whining and crying to me when you're not dealing with sin in your camp? And so they went and they did an investigation and they found out, sure enough, the consecrated garment that, that was not to be taken was taken and hidden by Achan, and his sin was affecting everybody around him in all of Israel. It was bringing about their ruin. Refusing to repent 
will always result in ruin. Just like tolerating sin always equals total disaster. They go together. They're hand in hand. Tolerance of sin and refusing to repent of sin. They're two really, really bad twins. And that's what was on display in this church. That's what was happening. And it was bringing about disaster. And it was going to bring about utter ruin if repentance didn't happen right away. And he goes on, Jesus goes on with that that ruin that's coming if repentance doesn't take place. Verse 23, he continues, I will strike her children dead. And that's not literal children. That means basically all who follow this woman, her disciples, her deceived disciples, the disciples of this Jezebel woman that have introduced the fact that immorality is all right, idolatry is okay, eating meat sacrificed to idols, it's okay. And what you do externally outside the body, that doesn't matter because your spirit remains untainted. We've talked about that already. Again, this was a common, this was like the premier false teaching of the day. That the soul and the spirit are the only thing that matter, and they remain pure no matter what because the grace of Christ covers it, so you're good, so the body doesn't matter, do what you want. And partnering with other people that are idol worshipers, that's fine. You can go to their festivals. You can hang out in the, in the pagan rituals. You're good. Don't worry about it. And so it, it introduced this into the church. And more people kept buying it and buying it. And so Jesus said, if that doesn't stop, if you don't expose that for the lie and the evil and the sin it is, and you don't repent from that, not only will I come after her, but I will strike her followers, her spiritual children, dead. And that, that, that in itself, before I move on to the rest of this verse, that in itself gives us something to pause and consider, and that is this, that not only does everyone influence someone else, but everyone has spiritual children. Whether it's a positive, a holy spirituality, a saved spirituality, or an evil, unsaved spirituality. Everyone is producing spiritual offspring. The, the person apart from Christ that's contrary to Christ is influencing people and bringing them along and pouring into them and producing their own spiritual children in a, in a very bad spirituality. And then the believer, and we have, oh my goodness, we have to be doing that. We have those who, who, who know the truth, we who, who know the truth, who have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit of God, we are to be reproducing that. So a good question to ask yourself is, what kind of children are you producing spiritually? And are you at all? Actively. Actively. But he says, I will strike her children dead, those who follow her. Why? Why is Jesus... So, so serious here, so intent on this? Why is he so, we could even say, harsh, fierce? Look at, look at what he says in the next statement here in verse 23. I'm doing this, and I will do this, and then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. He's saying, I'm, I'm coming at this church 
and I'm using them as an example for all the other churches to look at and learn from. We, we should always be doing that. We should be looking at, at what ha- is happening in, in other churches um, in terms of, of rebuke and the loving judgment of God so that we avoid the same pitfalls. When you, when you see a, a hole in the road, you know not to go in it, right? And you hopefully avoid it. And sometimes people have fallen in a certain place and they, they fall themselves and hopefully they'll turn around to someone and say, hey, be careful up here. There's something up here that, that's slippery or that's in the way and I tripped over it. I don't want you to do that too. You, you follow example not to repeat but to avoid the failure that went ahead of you. And so Jesus is saying, I'm coming at Thyatira and I'm judging and I'm calling out the sin and the wickedness and I'm calling for them to repent. And if that doesn't happen, I will judge. I will do it. Because I love not just them, but all the churches so much, I don't want the other churches to fall into the same trap that Thyatira is. So I will do this and I will lift them up as an example so the other churches will know I am who I am. I mean business. I take sin seriously. And then hopefully they would avoid that as well. It also reinforces something else that we find in Scripture. It's an uncomfortable truth, but it's an important truth. It's a necessary truth. And that's what we find in 1 Peter 4.17. In 1 Peter 4.17, the Apostle Peter says this, For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household or the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? In other words, judgment should begin in the church. It's time for us to judge ourselves, to discern ourselves, to expose any pollution and corruption of of sin that is existing in our own body, that we should, should look inwardly and be realistic and be awake and aware enough that we judge ourselves. Peter said that's where it's supposed to start. Judgment begins with the house of God. That's another contrary message to culture. Culture constantly says not just be more tolerant, but don't judge. Nobody should judge anybody else. Your truth is fine for you. And my truth is fine for me. And who am I to judge you and your version of truth? And who are you to judge me? <clears throat> Wrong. If truth is relative and subjective, it's not truth. For truth to be truth, it has to be objective. There has to be an absolute standard of, standard of truth. And guess what? There is. It's in the living truth, Jesus Christ. And so we, we pattern our reason and, and what we see as true after Him and according to Him and what He has said is true, which never changes. And so judge, that word, is not only not a bad word, but it's a necessary word and it's a necessary practice for the church to continually individually, like me, me judging me, you judging you, and us together corporately doing that 
so that we are a pure and holy body. Judgment. The time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. It means we dig under our tents constantly and we see if there's any Babylonian garments there. And if there are in any form, we get them out. Get them out. Verse 24. He's, Jesus is starting to, to wrap up. And he says this, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, so it wasn't universal. There was still hope for this church. It wasn't everyone that was compromising and tolerating this sin and not holding to it or holding to the the falsehood. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the, quote, so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, more on that in just a second, I am not putting any other burden on you. In other words, you have enough burden to deal with. You're resisting all of this that's happening in your church. You're standing your ground. You're standing strong. You are pushing back. You are resisting. Hey, good, good. Keep that up. I'm not going to give you any other burden because that's a big enough one. And he says, you haven't held on. You haven't come and and joined this, this false, dangerous teaching. You haven't known or embraced the so-called secrets of Satan, what is that about? Well, that is this, this woman and, and this teaching that she introduced, this false teaching and this deception, and it wasn't just here. It was something that was common in this time, in this area. There was this phrase, the deep things of Satan, and it went like this. To defeat Satan... And to stand against Satan and to stand against his attacks and to to go on the offense against Satan, you have to embrace him. You have to go deep into the things of Satan to learn about Satan so you can beat him. Wow, that sounds smart. No, no, not at all. I mean, you don't have to swim in the sewer to know that it stinks. You smell it a mile away, right? You don't have to swim in the sewer to know that it stinks. You don't have to become a criminal to be able to recognize crime. Contrary to what we see on TV, you don't have to go undercover just to recognize where the bad guys are. Uh, Counterfeit experts. They don't learn to spot what's phony by memorizing the fake. They study and know the real thing so much that they can easily recognize what's not real. You know a a line is crooked because you know what a straight line looks like. But this teaching, this sect, was saying, oh, to, to really know what Satan's all about, to really uncover his strategies and schemes, you've got to actually embrace embrace what he's about. You've got to go deep into the mysteries of Satan and the occult to figure out what they're all about. No, danger, danger. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Jesus says, I know that there are some in your church who have seen that for the, the absolute insanity that that is and the, the danger that that is, and you haven't gone that way. Good, good. Keep it up. Keep it up. Verse 25, he says, Only hold on to what you have until I come. Hold on to the truth. Hold on to the light. Hold on to holiness. 
I am coming, and until I come, you and every church after you, every church throughout every generation, until I come, that includes us, Faith Baptist, hold on to what you have, to the truth you have, to the righteousness you have, to the holiness you have. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't tolerate. Don't compromise. And to those who do that, he says this in verse 26 and 27. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, the one who conquers this tolerance, the one who conquers compromise, the one who conquers falsehood and sin, and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. That's speaking of the millennial earthly reign of Jesus when he does truly set every wrong right. And all who are truly in him reign under him and shepherd the kingdom under him and with him. But you don't, you don't do that by tolerating sin. You don't do that by refusing to repent. Verse 28, I love this verse, this statement as he wraps up. I love it. Verse 28, just as I have received this from my Father, listen to this part, catch this, don't miss this, I will also give him the morning star. Now, before I tell you, I'm curious, does anyone know what he means by that? What, what and, and whom the morning star is? Shout it out, tell me. It's Jesus himself. He is the bright and morning star. And so what Jesus is saying here is, be faithful, hold on to truth, hold on to holiness, hold on to me, and I will give you myself. I'll give you myself. And there is no greater gift. And this isn't just talking about salvation. Remember, this is written to the church. This is written to people who are already saved. They've already received Christ in salvation. He's saying, I will give myself completely to you in unhindered, unclosed fellowship and relationship. In other words, you will be able to be as intimate with me as I am intimate with my Father. Perfect fellowship and relationship. Perfect communion with Jesus himself. There is a, um, a quote in The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis, which is the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. Love Chronicles of Narnia. And in The Magician's Nephew, Aslan, which is the Christ figure in that story, he has created Narnia. And so as he creates Narnia, and he, he's making all the animals and all the world, and, and he's giving speech to the animals. He says this, Aslan, in the, in the book, in that creation account. Creatures, I give you yourselves. I give to you forever this land of Narnia. I give you the woods, the fruits, the rivers. I give you the stars, and I give you myself. What makes... Heaven, heaven, church, is Jesus. And when we all get to heaven, what a day that will be, like the song says, but it's not going to be just 
it's not going to be because we're reunited with all of our loved ones. As great as that's going to be, and man, am I looking forward to that. It's not going to be because you have a perfect body. I'm looking forward to that. It's not going to be because there's streets of gold and shining bright uh, beauty and glory and splendor everywhere. It's not going to be because you get to talk to Paul and the Apostle John who wrote this and Peter and David and all those heroes of the faith that we all say, oh, I can't wait to talk to so-and-so and ask them about this. It's not because of any of that. It's not because we get to see the, the glorious angels. No, what's going to make heaven heaven and truly the paradise that it is is that we get Jesus. We get Jesus more than we've ever ever had him before. Verse 29, the the now famous and frequent way Jesus closes his letters, same with this church, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. It's the Spirit who gives us ears to hear, and we better take the ears he's given us and listen to what he says to us from this letter that was originally to this ancient church. It was meant for them originally and directly, but it's meant for us as well by extension. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your Word. Thank You that it is timeless. It is relevant always. Father, thank You for the challenge to Thyatira as scathing as that rebuke was. It was necessary. And Father, as we, as we heard it today and as we read it, may we not just listen to it, may we not just read it, rather may we apply that warning to our own lives. Help us, Holy Spirit, to have ears to hear what You would say to us, this church, as a result of what You said to that church. Help us to heed it, Help us to apply it. Help us to be a church full of people that individually and together corporately do not tolerate sin at any level. Help us to be people that do not refuse to repent at any time so that we don't see total disaster happen in our midst and so that we don't experience ruin. Help us to glorify and honor You. Help us to hold on to what You've given us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.